Ephesians chapter 5, please. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we consider your word, that you teach us, that we would appreciate you more and see the glory of the relationship you've blessed us with. In Jesus' name, amen. My father, if nothing else, is consistent and repetitive. He's many things, but he's he's consistent and repetitive. As I was growing up, he used to tell me all the time that I was a chip off the old block. So I've got that drilled into my head, a chip off the old block. One of the realities of a relationship with someone, when we, we come from someone, is their traits rub off on us. Some of them are in our DNA, in our genes, when it comes to a, a father-son relationship, it's certainly in our, our, our genes. But it's, there's also, as you are nurtured along in your upbringing, that rubs off as well, a chip off the old block. Well, as we consider tonight these few verses of Scripture, we want to recognize the importance of the relationship that we have with God, how it impacts us. As we look through scripture, as we look through the New Testament even particularly, we recognize the truth of our relationship with with God. It says in chapter 5 and verse 1 of Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. That relationship that we have with God is, is the essence of that imitation. Take away the the relationship, and there's no way to imitate God. It's impossible, and we want to we recognize that it's, it's so important. If we just read this text and we don't recognize the context, we really will mess up in our understanding of this passage of Scripture. It's like as if we could tell 50 unbelievers, hey, listen, go imitate God. And here are all the ways that you can go imitate God. And we send them on their way. What is our expectation of the results of that? Not much. The same expectation ought to be recognized if that same instruction is given to a believer. Hey, imitate God. Here's how you do it. Now go and do likewise. If we do that, people are going to go away and they're not going to imitate God. They might try. They might try to mirror things that are deity. Did you hear what I just said? Do you have the ability to mirror the things that are deity? No. You can make things look kind of like what you've read, kind of like what you've been taught, but you can't produce supernatural activity. Don't shortchange. Don't shortchange what God has called you to. He has called you and I to the impossible. Walk as imitators of God. That's impossible. You just have no shot. Do you want to pack it in and go home now? No. No, the context of this gives us hope. Because it's not about you copying God in your behavior. It's about God supernaturally being at work in you to produce what only he can produce. As we recognize through scripture... Um, God's children bear his image. In fact, all creation was made, all of, God, all, of the, in, all human beings are made in the image of God. 
The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we bear the image of God. Through the process of salvation and sanctification, God says, I'm making you like myself, and I'm not finished until the job is done. We see that in Philippians 1.6. You see it in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. God's not done. If God is the author of our salvation, sanctification, and glorification, you can be sure of one thing. It will be done. It will be done. We have great confidence because he never falls short. As we look through scripture, we see things like, be holy for I am holy. That's God making a demand upon us. We recognize that as true. I can't live my life in my flesh and expect that God's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Be holy. Why? For I am holy. We're to reflect the nature of our heavenly father. But how do we, how do we reflect that? How does that come about? Is it, is it of our own accord? Is it because we've learned really lots and lots of techniques? Is it because we've learned uh, a method? No. No, it's all because God is at work in us. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5, in verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In Luke 6, 36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So God is telling us to be like him. He's called us to be like him. As we consider further, the Bible makes it very clear that this is a process. Look at what it says in verse 1 again. Therefore, be imitators of God. The word there, be, is become. Become imitators of God. Right in the passage, he's telling us there's a process involved. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that we are sanctified from glory, one kind of glory, one stage of glory, to another. How do we do this? As the just who live by faith. Uh, we recognize in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we continually draw our attention into the word of God, the spirit of God takes the word and he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. We recognize to become Imitators of God, it requires God's working in us through the means that he has given us, the word and the spirit and his son. I want to ask you this question before we launch off into our study. Does our relationship, does our relationship with a triune God make a difference? This is another one of those sections of scripture where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, conveys the concept of the Trinity. In verses, 20, uh, verses 20, uh, 30 through 32, he's talking about the Spirit, and then he makes reference to God the Father and God the Son in verse 32. Then he talks about God the Father in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then he talks about Christ the Son in verse 2 at the beginning, and then God the Father at the end of verse 2. He's weaving the Trinity right through this whole context. And, and that concept of the Trinity and our relationship to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the essence whereby we can do the things that are contained in this text. Does our relationship with the triune God, the triune God, make a difference? Well, I say it does. In fact, as we consider these, this passage, we recognize, first of all, in our relationship with the Spirit, He's the one whereby we have the ability to forgive. Look what it says, beginning in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Why is it that he starts this little subsection with the demand, don't grieve the Spirit? What is so grievous toward the Spirit when I am bitter? or wrathful, or angry, if I'm clamoring, or slanderous with my tongue, if I have malicious intent towards someone else, why would that be an, an affront to the Spirit? Because it's the opposite of the character of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason God saved you was that he might demonstrate his character and nature, not just in heaven, but on earth, he wants to see us re replicating and reflecting his glory. To be involved in bitterness and anger and resentment and clamor and malicious speaking, to, to be um, holding a grudge, to be unforgiving really is the concept, is to reflect everything opposite of who the Spirit of God is. Because the Spirit of God is, is God. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, not only are they of one essence, they are of one nature. And as one in nature, all three members of the triune Godhead are holy. And in this context, are forgiving. He contrasts that lack of forgiveness in verse 31 with the kindness that is necessary in verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. But the context is, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives you that tenderhearted, loving kindness, that kindness that is necessary for forgiveness. I want, I want for us to look at a passage. It's a very familiar passage. Luke chapter 15. For us not to reflect the forgiveness of God is an affront to God's character. And it's grievous to the Spirit of God who dwells within us and is to be the source of God's grace in our lives. If I can impress upon you as we read just a portion, I'm going to cut right into the middle of this account of the prodigal son. Now you know the prodigal son essentially says to his father, I wish you were dead, give me my money now. That's what he said to his father. I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now. His father gives it to him. He goes off. He squanders it. All of his friends are gone. He's wallowing with the pigs. And he remembers his father. He remembers how his father treated the servants. If I can just go back there and be like one of them, it'll be much better than my current situation. 
Here's where we pick it up. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he, he arose and came to his father. Stop. Stop right there. His expectation, my father treated all the hired servants well. I'll be okay. I can go back as a hired servant. This is his expectation. He was going to go and confess his sinfulness before God and before his father. This is his plan. His father doesn't know this. His father doesn't know the plan. And yet, we read something about the father's character before he even hears a word from his son. Now, you might say, well, well, this is a picture of God the Father, and it is. And God the Father knows everything. That's true, but that's not, the story isn't about that. Not yet. It's not telling you that this Father has omniscience. He doesn't know everything. The Father's just looking down the road. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And kissed him. Luke is piling on the. He's getting on. Jesus is con conveying. Look at this here and here and here. No, nothing from the son yet. He's just walking back. And the father goes running and he embraces him and he kisses him. And, and we know, but we know the next thing the son says what he said, right? What is the father's disposition toward him? He, it's, it's a lean forward. It's a leaning toward, not a leaning away. This, this is what we, we think, some people think of God like this. You rot. Your sin disgusts me. I want nothing to do with you. This is the, the, the religious anticipation of God when we sin. I don't want you. I don't like you. You're not worthy. And God is running toward people and he's ready to embrace them. This is God's disposition toward people toward sinners coming to him. Think about this. The whole concept that churchianity has created toward God is faulty. Here's God's disposition. It's a lean toward. He doesn't just hug him and kiss him and embrace him and welcome him home. He throws royal cloaks on him. He has a party for him. What's going on here? Talk about forgiveness. And it's a little window. It's a little window into God's character. It's a little window into God's disposition toward us. He is, he's toward us. Now listen, God's posture or disposition toward us is one of love and admiration and one of embrace and, and welcome because of Christ, we know the reason why. Because Jesus has already paid. He's already dealt with the sin problem. This is why God the Father is leaning toward us. Because of Christ. You and I, we struggle. We struggle with forgiveness occasionally. When people, some, people have done you dirty. I believe it. I believe it. And, and it's hurtful. 
Maybe they've really, they've really waylaid you and it's so difficult for you to conceive of forgiving. You struggle and it bothers you. Here's the, what's the solution? What's the solution for, for this? Here's the human solution. Look at how much God has forgiven you. Wouldn't it be foolish for you not to forgive? That's a good rationale. I've used it myself, and I believe that it's a valid human rationale. It won't enable someone to forgive. Please know that. Saying, look how much God has forgiven you. Shouldn't you be able to forgive them? That's not going to cause someone to forgive someone else. It might be a good rationale, and it is. It's, it's great as far as saying, yeah, that's, that's a good concept, but that will not enable someone to forgive. Here's the divine Here's your divine solution. You want a divine solution for your lack of forgiveness, your resentment problem that you have, your bitterness towards someone, how they've hurt you so deeply. You want the real solution? It's to say, God, I can't forgive. I can't do it. But you can. You can do this. Friends, you don't have what it takes to be God, nor do I. I can't imitate God. It's impossible except by grace. God's grace enables me not only to understand the demand of Scripture, God's grace enables me to fulfill, fulfill the demand of Scripture. I can't forgive, but God can. And God can forgive through me. I have to first admit I can't do it. Listen, maybe you've been struggling for a long time Maybe I'm going to pull up some scabs on you right now. Maybe you've been struggling with someone for a long time, and you've just said, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to forget about it. That's, that's not forgiveness. That's forgetting about it. There's a difference. The reason you just decided to forget about it is because you struggled so many times, and you were so unable to forgive. Welcome to humanity. You and everyone else is in that same camp. I want to encourage you, friend, rather than just forget about it. Say, God, I, I really haven't been able to do this. And I, re and I know I really can't. God, will you help me to forgive? Will you forgive through me so I don't have to keep bearing this burden? What, what impact does it have when I can't forgive Someone that sinned against me. Well, let's just read back in the text. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's a pretty stiff consequence. I want to ask you, is it worth holding on to that grudge? It's not. The solution isn't, hey, go, go out and figure out how to forgive him. The solution is, God, I, I haven't been able to, and I know in my own strength I can't, but I know you can enable me to do this. Believe him. Do you believe God? Do you believe he can do anything? Do you believe he created the world in six days? Now, some people don't believe that there was an ark, and they're, they're making a big stink about it these days because of the ark exhibit in Kentucky or wherever it is. Do you, you believe that there was an ark? 
You believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. You believe that Jesus walked on the water. You believe that Jesus healed the blind man. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You, you believe that God can do anything. How about this? How about this? He can. He can forgive through you that one who has hurt you deeper than anyone else. To refuse to allow him to do that is an affront to his character. It's a grief to the spirit. And it, it really prohibits you and I, if we will hold on to this, it'll prohibit us from being true imitators of God. You can't imitate God of your own accord. If the spirit isn't doing that through you, you're, you're out of luck. Does our relationship with the triune God make a difference? Of course it does. It can enable us to forgive. Head back to Ephesians Five now. As we look a little further into the text, chapter 5 and verse 1, we've read and we understand the implications here. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear, as beloved children. So as those children who are loved by God, we're being called to become, to be following God, to be imitating God. And we know that this only comes through our relationship with him. It says in verse 2 now, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So in our relationship with Jesus, that he's talking about here in verse 2, it's a little net up here, so forgive me if I'm swatting stuff. It was flying around my face. Walking in love is displayed in verse 2, because he says, as. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. So you walk like Christ walked. You walk in love like Christ walked in love. What is it that he did to walk in love? He gave himself up. Or we could say he laid down his life. He laid it down. This is what Jesus did. Now we remember Matthew twenty. 28, where the Bible says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and gave his life a ransom for many. Jesus gave it up. We know about Philippians 2, how he, he, he though being in the form of God, thought it not right to be equal with God, and he, he became obedient unto death, what? Even the death of the cross. We know about Jesus' sacrifice. Real love is defined by God sending his son. Real love is defined by Jesus laying down his life. When God says, I love you, he, he lays it down. When we say, I love you to God, what are we doing? We're laying it down. Laying it down. We all know Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what? Present the word present means to lay at the disposal of or to place at the disposal of that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He says, lay it down. In our relationship with Jesus Christ, we must learn by God's grace to forsake ourselves. In our relationship with the Spirit, we're learning to forgive others. We know it's only through His power. In our relationship with Jesus Christ, as we walk in love, as imitators of God, as dear children, we're being told to lay our lives down, forsake ourselves. 
it's, it's so easy to talk about on a Sunday. Like we can all nod our heads like a bobblehead. We can all say amen. But we are so intimately aware of our own desires. And it's so easy just to cater to ourselves. I want pie, I eat pie. I want a movie, I watch a movie. I want to go to Target and buy, let's see, what's a really good thing? A, a football, I go and buy a football. I was going to say something like knitting or you know, knitting needles, you know. Whatever it is you like, I don't know what you like, gardening stuff. You want something, you know how to scratch the itch, don't you? It's so natural, but God has called for us to lay it down, lay it down. Maybe practice every now and then when you have a desire, even if it wouldn't be wrong to do it. Just practice. Don't fulfill it. Instead of eating seven buckets of ice cream, just eat two. Or instead of going and buying the football, just don't. Lay it down. Every now and then, we need to discipline our body. Forsake self. Now as we transition to our final concept here, forgiving others, forsaking self, focusing on God's pleasure, we see that at the end of verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, listen carefully, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want you to turn to a couple of passages just to think about this fragrant offering. Just for a minute. I want for us to see what kind of idea that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is conveying. Look at Genesis chapter 8. Now, Bible students, you're thinking about what's going on in Genesis chapter 8. And you're thinking, okay, I know what's going on in Genesis 8 because Genesis 6 through 9 is about one particular guy and his family and some animals and a, a boat or a ship or an ark. We, we know what's going on in Genesis 8. In Genesis 6, every thought and intent of every man's heart was only evil continually. God relented. He repented of having made man. But Noah found grace, undeserved merit. It wasn't because Noah was perfect. Undeserved favor with God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God, for our sake, spared him that he might preserve the line of the Messiah, we might have a savior. What a God. Here in the midst of tragic events, untold numbers of people and animals perishing, I don't, we don't look back at that and say, great, that, that's sobering. In the midst of this tragedy, you come to the end of the ark adventure and they, God opens the door and Noah comes out verse 20 Genesis 8 20 then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Noah brings this offering. God says, that is pleasing. After all the death and carnage, pleasing. Look at Exodus. Exodus 29. Exodus 29 and verse 18, cutting right into the middle of it. It says, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Verse 25, then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. God is satisfied as people fulfill what he demands. He gives them this, this picture of what is to come. This sacrifice that points them to the ultimate sacrifice. You'll remember Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And later on in the same book, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was that will? What was that work? He was going to offer himself on a cross. And Paul says it was a fragrant aroma, pleasing to God. That's the death of his son. He gave himself up for us. And it pleased the father to bruise him. You'll remember in Romans 15, this is one of my favorite verses, by the way, Romans 15, 3. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. Jesus, that sacrifice that pleases God, the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, the fullest satisfaction. It's a biblical word. Ready? Propitiation. Propitiation. It means that God's wrath against my sin was forever satisfied. I'll never stand before God and have him say, you, you, you. No. His posture toward us is an inward, forward lean. Why? Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against my sin. This is the most beautiful thing that we could ever ponder. Jesus gave himself that I might have life. One more passage of scripture, please. Ezekiel 20. Again, we're going to cut into a context. And the people that read this the first time have no clue, no clue why God smelled them as a pleasant aroma. They don't know why as God portrays this future event that they were going to smell good to him. They don't know why. We do. We know why they would smell good. Verse 41. Ezekiel 20, verse 41. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. What a happy little phrase. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you, when I bring you out 
from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations and you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers and there you shall remember your ways. There you, not that I'm going to remind you, you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I, the Lord, that I am the Lord, when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your what? Not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. They don't know why. I know why. Do you know why? They would not stand there and be held in judgment for their evil deeds and their corrupt nature. Because Jesus is a sweet, pleasing aroma to God who washed away all their sin, abhorring all my sin, adoring only him. That has got to be the testimony of our lives. Not, oh, God saved me and look how great I am now. Oh, look at me. Look at how far I've come. Look at how mature and spiritual and godly I am. No one actually says that. But friends, to even imply that, your focus is in the wrong place. Now, back in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a pleasing aroma to God in our relationship with him, in our standing with him, in our walking with him. Guess what? We smell good to God. You know that? When we're walking in the power of the Spirit, we've put on Christ and we smell good to God. In other words, we're a pleasing aroma to God. He's satisfied. Now, religion basically makes you and I feel like we could never satisfy God. You could never be good enough. You could never be worthy enough. You could only hope that maybe someday you might make it after some cleansing and purging. No. In Christ, we're a pleasing aroma to God. Does it make a difference, this relationship we have with a triune God? I say yes. Through the Spirit, we can forgive others. Through our relationship with our God, we, we can forsake ourselves. And as we behold our Savior, we can focus our attention on God's pleasure. And through Christ, we are God's pleasure. It's, it's a wonderful thing to know the gospel, how it impacts us not only unto salvation, but in our daily walk. We are desperate. We can't do these things. It is impossible, which is why we celebrate. This is why we celebrate. We, we say, look, this 
this broken bread, this torn bread is reminiscent of that torn body. It reminds us of that torn body that was broken for me. This spilled blood, this, this, this cup that has grape juice, it reminds us. It, it's a picture of the, the shedding of Jesus' blood that was shed for me. And this is what makes us right and pleasing in the sight of an holy and almighty God. I want to close this section of our time in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for all you've done. You've provided for us life and breath and all things. And of all things, we rejoice most gladly in the salvation you've provided to us through Jesus. We ask that you'd help us now as we celebrate the Lord's table, your table, the table that shows us of the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, that we would do so in a worthy manner, that we would do so for your glory, that we would have come together for the better and not for the worse. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.